The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. everybody thank you very much for joining us for episode 23 of the boys of tech for the 29th of june 2009 hosting the show i'm edwin herman my co-host brett king welcome hello some cool stories i've i've seen on the list to talk about tonight Indeed. A couple very interesting ones in there. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll kick off with uh, with Google's uh, new technology. Google's going to improve our image search. The way it's going to do that is it's created a new piece of technology that's going to identify photos based on existing ones that have been geotagged. So, for example, you might have taken a snap of the, the Eiffel Tower and you know what it's going to do is compare that photo against a whole bunch of others and around the same, same location that have been geotagged and by comparing pixels, you can actually determine whether it thinks your photo is, is of the same place or somewhere else or perhaps even an idea of where it was taken. Interesting. I wonder how it will cope with buildings which are, you know, replicas of each other. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's because you have, that. for instance, you have what is it? The um, one of the buildings in Paris is an exact replica of somewhere in Italy. Was it somewhere in Rome? The Parthenon? No, not the Parthenon. That's in Greece. What's that other one? Oh, Pantheon. Yes. <clears throat> Isn't there um one of the ones in Paris? You should know this. Come on. Uh, it's been You're a while. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, could well be. Well, uh, you know. Because, yeah, the, the, the frontages of those two are basically identical because that was the point of it. Well, actually. So, if I wonder look, how it will uh, handle identical buildings like that. But the concept is really, really quite neat. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It, it'll mean that, you know, you search for something on Google by, you know, building and location, and it will go, oh, this one, and then it, we use its cool little search to have already tagged a whole heap of others, which it believes are pictures of the same thing, and so it brings them all up too. Now, I'll tell you, very cool. th- this will be very useful for me, because what I'm actually in the middle of is my photo album from when I visited uh, Europe uh, about two, three, four, four years ago now. Uh, I'm going through the photos one by one. It's very, very slow, and uh, it's a very painstaking task but i'm going through and effectively geotagging it i'm, I'm mm-hmm. finding out where i took that photo and in, 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 in iphoto i'm putting in the the geotag uh, iphoto has some nice little tools that make it really easy but what it doesn't have is the ability to do what google have uh, have developed in their in their labs and that is to to go out and look at existing geotagged photos that look the same and to work out where they are so that would yeah. be so helpful Mm, it will be interesting to see if it does, you know, it, the use of it does expand into those other applications or whether or not it will be something that Google keeps only for its image search Well, that's function. true. Yeah, because they could, they could offer it as a service, couldn't they? Well, if they could use it to improve their image search because currently what 
what does their image search do? It search for bits on the page, bits in the name of the picture and that sort of thing, which is why if you put in some things, I think as you mentioned on a previous program, depending on what you put in into the image search on Google, you may end up with pictures which have absolutely no relevance, but somewhere on the page it mentions that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And this way, at least, if it actually does some sort of comparison, you say, I want pictures of the Eiffel Tower, then it will actually get you pictures which represent the Eiffel Tower. It'll be interesting to see if it brings in, if it only does it for photos or for, you know, somebody's sketch of the Eiffel Tower or somebody's cartoon of the Eiffel Tower, and it can recognize those shapes as being shapes of the Eiffel Tower, and it brings those in as well. It'll be interesting to see if it does that or if it only does things on photos. They reckon the accuracy is about 80% at the moment. Now, even if Mm -hmm. that doesn't get better, even if it was, I don't know, half of, you know, 50%, uh, that's still useful for people. You know, they can just put their image up there, so, uh, you know, compare it against the others, and then and then find a potential match. Any, in fact, any hit rate is, is useful. Indeed, anything which gets rid of a lot of the clutter when you're doing an image search um, will be good. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I just do wonder though if I take a photo of the power pylon down the road, is that going to mistake it for the Eiffel Tower? Well, <laughs> don't know. Maybe, probably not. Hopefully it's a little smarter than that. I think it'll be more, you take a picture of a power pylon, somebody does a search for power pylons, and it suddenly says that all power pylons must come from this one place which was originally geotagged as a power pylon. (laughs) So you took one from down the street in in Wadestown, and it says, no, 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 you're not in Wadestown, you're in Wisconsin. (laughs) Because that's where I saw, (laughs) because that's where previously one of these power pylons was taken. That would be very funny. (laughs) And it will be interesting in those places where there is a relatively famous building that happens to be replicated in several different places because people, you know, in the olden days, people liked to build buildings in a certain style. And so you'd end up with a cathedral in one place being the original and then a replica of that cathedral built in somewhere in America or somewhere somewhere else in Europe. And as the homage to the original structure so it'd be interesting to see if it picks those things up because looking at the um the structure picture you know which they've produced to give an indication of how it does its comparisons it can do things like landmarks around the building but if you've just taken a close-up of the frontage of the building which gives no indication of what's surrounding the building, then how's it going to know if it's the one that's sitting in France or if it's the one that's sitting in Italy or if it's the one that was built in Wisconsin? Yeah, but there are, there are already 40 million geotagged photos out there. Now, if mm. there are two locations, then the, you know it'll surely detect that there are two bunch, mm. bunches of different types of tags, one Indeed, for over here, one for over that there. That is what we'd hope. And so, yeah, you'd hope that it sort of gives you the choice and says, well, actually, this building could be either here in France or there in Italy. Yep. Which one are you? And, so, well, it'll obviously somebody will have to update it if somebody discovers that, in fact, there's more than just those two. Actually, I don't think that basing it, its data on the existing geotags is necessarily a good idea because in the exercise that I went through looking for, you know, to, to find my photos, I saw a whole bunch of stuff that, that wasn't actually properly geotagged and it kind of threw me off a little bit and I finally worked it out. But there's, there, there are photos out there that, um, of, you know, famous places that have been very poorly geotagged. So. Oh, there are, you would be surprised the number of tourists who can't, remember or spell correctly the name of the place that they were when they visited something. I was, oh, I had something happen recently where somebody was talking about something and they were saying, oh, yes, yes, that's that place. That's that place, Ephesus in Turkey. And it's like, no, no, that's 
clearly the, you know, that's clearly Petra, which happens to be in Jordan. It's a very famous place. But these people swore that it was some place called, was the place Ephesus in Turkey. If you ask, you know, one of those people who's just jumping at something, don't really know, but are saying something anyway, then if that's what you're geotagging your pictures at, then suddenly, yeah, you will end up with how many of those 40 million currently geotagged ones are geotagged correctly by people who really knew where they were. Oh man, I can't wait for the day when all cameras, even the point and shoot ones, have GPS on board. Indeed. <laughs> That'd be so useful. In fact, I wish mine did when I took those 2,000 photos in Europe over <laughs> six months. I, I wish I had a, <laughs> a GPS oh, camera. Yeah, I, I, I wish that as well because when I was in Europe last, it was. I, I took so many photos of different castles and different ruins of stuff in Europe. And well, they they very much merge after a while. Oh, yeah. You go, yes. Was that was that one of those umpteen castles I took a photo of when I was in Germany, or is it one of the ones from Austria, or is it one of the ones from Italy or France? It gets very hard. So yeah, no. Look, I, I think one day all cameras will, will come with with GPS as a standard. I'm sure. Indeed. So not only will they be able to put in the date and time of where you took that, but also the location. That will be brilliant. Absolutely. I, that might would that render that wouldn't render you, uh, Google service useless, would it? No, no. This is still search. Google's still is, search. is searching. Google's yeah. is to improve the search. So, if you took a photo of the Eiffel Tower, then sure, you've got a photo of the Eiffel Tower. But if you've never been to France and never taken a photo of the Eiffel Tower, and you go, I want to search for pictures of the Eiffel Tower, you want to be pretty sure that the pictures that come up in that image search are pictures of the Eiffel Tower and not pictures of a power pylon outside Edward's house. I did take a lot of photos of the Eiffel Tower too, by the way. Mm, so did I. <laughs> it's I think it's one of those things which when you are there, you do take a lot of photos of it. Oh, look, you know, it actually blew me away because, look, I always viewed the Eiffel Tower as just an oversized power pylon, but it's not until you actually get there that you realise mm. what a massive structure this really is that simply yeah, dwarfs anything. Any power pylon. More inspiring it is. Oh, absolutely. I was It was blown it away. was the the one moment when I was away in Europe that I actually felt that I was somewhere, you know, somewhere awe inspiring, somewhere special was the moment when I first saw the Eiffel Tower, this thing that I'd seen in so many movies and so many other pictures and then suddenly I'm standing there. And this was halfway through my you know, month around Europe. And I'd already been to Germany and seen a whole heap of stuff there, but it wasn't until I got to Paris and saw the Eiffel Tower that I really felt that I am somewhere completely different. Yeah. When when we got back from Europe, my wife said to me, so what was the best part of the trip? What did you like the most? And for me, it was exactly that same answer without a doubt. It was the Eiffel Tower. And that I it's, it's for that very reason. It's because you see it everywhere and it's like, oh, yeah, the Eiffel Tower. Oh, yeah, pylon sort of structure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you sort of dismiss thing. it. It's a big metal thing. It's a big famous landmark. Exactly. Just like, the, you know, the Colosseum and all those other exactly. places. But you kind of dismiss it. But when you get up there or just even near it and under it and see it at night and, and you know, go up it, it's just absolutely amazing. Anyway, you, and you've got to also put this in perspective. This was built in 1895. Mm -hmm. This is, I don't know how they did that. But anyway, <laughs> coming back to tech. Just for a <laughs> Indeed, <little> bit. <laughs> we'll get off of European structures. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to the technology news here. Welcome to Europe Weekly. 
<laughs> your travel podcast. Coming back to tech, though, the next story I wanted to talk about was the face recognition software that is basically designed to stop prying eyes from looking at your screen. Yes, a really, really interesting piece of technology, this one. Yeah, so the way it works is it relies on the camera in your computer to recognize your face as the owner of the computer. The moment you look away, your screen is scrambled. So even if you forget to lock your computer or you leave some work open, you walk away, your screen is scrambled. And the other cool feature is if someone looks over your shoulder, the camera knows where you are looking on the screen. It basically tracks your eyes and will scramble everything around that area. Very neat things. I think that's fantastic. I'd I'd love to give it a go. I'd love to see it in action too because this whole the whole scrambling it when you're not looking at the screen or when somebody else looks over your shoulder is a brilliant thing for those people who use their computers, their laptops out in public spaces. And a lot of people do that nowadays. And a lot of those people will be working on things of a sensitive nature, whether they should or should not be doing that in a public space is, you know, not part of this discussion. But this software will at least allow them to have that freedom, but know that if they've turned away, if they've gotten up to quickly grab their coffee off of the table, or if somebody's come up behind them, that other person or other people are not going to be able to see whatever's on the screen that that person's working on. What I'm most interested to see is this: the fact that it can partially scramble the screen where the you know legitimate user of the laptop, where they're focusing their attention, their eyes are looking on the screen, is unscrambled. But if somebody is standing over your shoulder and looking at the screen where they're looking, it is scrambled. Because of the, the amount of information you get from your peripheral vision when you're looking at something, and having that distorted in any way could be quite distracting. Even if the part of the screen that you are focusing on is unscrambled, Having the rest of the screen scrambled or even parts of the screen scrambled by other people looking could be quite distracting. Do you think we rely on our peripheral vision a lot more than we realise? I think we do indeed. A lot of vision impairments are based around distortions or disruptions in certain parts of vision, not necessarily the entirety of your vision. And they can be really quite disconcerting or have a relatively significant impact, not just on your recognition of what's directly under your eyes, but also in the comfort of being able to read the distraction of some other distortions around what you're trying to read can have a significant impact. So it'll be interesting to see how it does it and whether or not that can be more, you know, annoying than useful and whether or not it would be more useful to well i guess it would at least you'd pick it up in your peripheral vision and know somebody else was looking over your shoulder so you can turn around and say oi yeah that's true um so that your screen suddenly becomes undistorted again and you can (laughs) properly focus on what you're trying to focus on instead of having some random bits in your peripheral vision suddenly become scrambled yeah because it only does that when someone's looking looking over your shoulder it only does it when somebody's Mm -hmm. looking over your shoulder so that's not so bad really it's not so bad it does mean people shouldn't be looking over your shoulder but yeah Hmm. It is a very cool piece of technology. It is a very cool piece of software that I would look very forward to being able to have a go at. Well, that was developed by Oculus Lab, so you know, watch this space. I think that's indeed. a very, very good piece of technology. Indeed, you- indeed. The, the, the face recognition and eye tracking is really starting to come along, and it's good to see somebody thinking about 
uses for that sort of technology other than the whole big brother concept of being able to recognize who's walking past the security camera down the street. Being able to use this on a personal level, using this technology on an individual basis is really cool to see. Well, I think it will do away with those little rear vision mirrors that people stick up on their screens. That's that's for sure. Because mm, mm. <laughs> you've got to <laughs> keep watching those as well. Yeah. Let's just hope it doesn't, um, you know, see a splurge in people working on incredibly sensitive or private information while they're sitting in a cafe or an airport. Yeah, no, that wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't be advisable, but yeah, it may well lead to that. Mm, you know, mm. A false sense of security. A false sense of security, indeed. But any additional security features is always a good thing. All right, there's a floor in Apache. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and uh, it's a flaw that allows a denial of service attack. Now, it's not a DDoS, it's just a DOS attack. This is the importance of of the story. A researcher has found that you can perform a denial of service attack on an Apache server that doesn't actually require a distributed network of machines. In fact, you only need about two to 300 packets a minute. That's only about three a second. And mm. the, way it, the way it works is, First of all, I'll tell you the flaw. The flaw is that in Apache, if you make a request, a, you know, HTTP request as your browser does, but it's never fully completed, Apache will actually wait a really long time for the rest of the query. And if that never arrives, uh, that chews up resources. Now, all you need to do is feed it two to 300 unfinished requests a minute, and you'll find that, you'll, that that should be enough to take the machine down, or at least the web server down. Indeed. Very, very smart way to do it. Very interesting flaw, though. Yeah, because what's the alternative? If it, how long? Well, the alternative would be to obviously shrink the um, the waiting yeah, time. Yeah, shrink the waiting time um, so that it doesn't wait quite so long for the rest of the request to come through. So that it goes, oh, okay, this request is a faulty request. I will wait for a more complete request to come through, so that it can free up that connection thread. This floor is also found in certain other web servers, which are based on this, you know, a similar sort of architecture, where they have a limited number of connections that they will have open at any point in time, and the fact that they will hold one of those connections open, waiting for a completed request if a they only get a partial request. Whereas certain other web servers have a, you know, they'll accept as many requests as they want because they use connection pooling. So. The IIS, for example, isn't affected by this. But the, the reason this is such a big story is really because, uh, and I know you're right, it's not just Apache, but Apache is something like two-thirds of all web servers out there. Indeed, indeed. So it's potentially, and you know, um, potentially it could do a lot of damage. Because, you, and the, the, like I said, the other thing is you only need one computer sending... Two to three hundred. Absolutely yeah, not, not a lot. lot. Not a lot no, at all. No. It's going to affect small web servers and won't affect at all any of the big sites that use Apache because the big sites, they all use load balancing and pooling of connections. And this attack does not work on that sort of architecture. So I guess there are a lot of sites though out there that are hosted you know, on shared hosting platforms and they'd, they'd all be like this, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. That'll be vulnerable to it because they will all be non-load balanced. They'll all be using the standard Apache single machine, single server. Configuration. Set up. Mm. Yeah. Last week, we reported a rumor that Steve Jobs may have had a liver transplant. That rumor actually turns out to be true. So all the best for his recovery, I guess. 
Indeed, all the best for his uh, full recovery and return to helming Apple. There were rumours, just to go from rumour to fact back to rumour again, he'd been spotted on the Apple campus, so I think he is spending time back at the at, uh, at Apple, so that's a good sign. It is indeed. Kodak kills Kodachrome after 74 years. Goodbye, Kodachrome. Oh, ouch. Paul Simon's <laughs> not going to be very happy, is he? No, no, nobody's, you know, in another five years, nobody's going to know what in the hell this song was about. Exactly. <laughs> What's coat of chrome? A coat of chrome? <laughs> Misheardlyrics.com. Uh, but yes, it's another another end of an era thing where technology has changed and things that were massively popular and had such a humongous influence on so many aspects of our daily life and of the different, you know, film and media it has it's come to pass and it's going away. Well, it's just one of those things, isn't it? <laughs> it's one of those things where sometimes it can be quite sad and, you know, hard for to get over, but it's the way of the world. Things change. New things come along that may or may not be better, but can- sometimes they're cheaper and more efficient or do something else that makes them more desirable than the older version. And, well, unfortunately for Kodachrome and the people who love to take photos and do things with, you know, with mm-hmm. film and get into the chemicals and make their own photos and all and develop all of that sort of stuff themselves, that has to end. It doesn't become cost effective for the makers to keep on making it, keep on supporting it. Well, I think it's I think film's going to go into a very niche market. I don't think it's ever going to die. It's a little bit like vinyl. Um, for all mm. intents and purposes, it's dead, but really there is a niche market there. There is a niche vinyl, market. There the be, connoisseurs who, who love vinyl yeah. and will continue to buy vinyl, and there are people who will continue to produce it. Mm, absolutely, to fill in film, that niche. But yeah, film's going to be the same thing. You know, the, 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 film will be the same thing, but it will not be on. But we'll see. Yeah. There'll be others. Yeah. There'll yeah. be others. So, and it, you know, it is actually a bit of an art developing photos. Well, it was a bit of an art developing photos. Mm. Yeah, look. Indeed. Uh, they, they, and they, and the, the art of taking photos. In the, the old days, you know, you had 24 shots, maybe a few more, maybe a few less, depending on what sort of film you were using. Hell, on the really old school stuff, you had like one shot. <laughs> and so you had to frame everything. You had to carefully time it. You, so when you got that photo, you know you had done something really, really well. Or if you're trying to take a photo of something, you know, you want a spectacular photo of ducks taking off and you want to get one of those awesome photos that they get from the cover of National Geographic. In the old days, it would be a cameraman sitting there for ages, waiting for the thing to happen and then hoping that when he put his finger down that he got the shot he was looking for. If not, he had to wait again and take a snap. Now it's you get your digital camera, put it on multi-shot, hold your finger down for you know a few seconds or more, and suddenly you've got a hundred photos, and one of them's bound to be good. <laughs> Ninety-nine of them might be blurry and horrible crap that you then discard, but one of them will be good. And hey, it didn't cost you a cent. It didn't cost you a cent, and it didn't take a lot of effort to do, and it didn't take any skill. It is by sheer chance, and that's what the new technology has created. That is why we have so many more really good photos coming around because anybody anybody can take a good photo now it doesn't require skill it just requires patience and holding the button down long enough Um, so the the art of taking a good photo 
is less about the skill now and more about the technology. Well, it's a bit sad that uh, they let it go after 74 years. They could have waited the extra one for its 75th anniversary, but... uh... Mm, mm. Maybe, well, by putting it out, getting rid of it this year, it means they can bring out a limited edition 75th year anniversary set of Kodachrome that everybody who takes film photos is going to be, you know... They'll rush out and buy, yeah. They'll rush out and buy. Mm, There's an idea for Kodak. But yes, it is, it's always sad to see something which has had such a big impact, such a big influence on the world. You know, that, that really famous photo of the, the, the Afghan girl with the bright green eyes in National Geographic was taken with this, was taken with Kodachrome. So it's, it's being used to take some of the most influential photos in the world and it's going away now. So it's, it's always really sad to see something that has had such a big influence go away. You may not have heard of Andy Stanford Clark, but he's big in the news at the moment. He's the guy who lives in the Isle of Wight, it's part of the UK, and he's basically wired up his home to Twitter. So when the dog walks in, the house tweets and says, the dog's come in the door. When there's a mouse caught in the mouse trap, the house tweets and says, I've caught a mouse. Tells you when the lights are on, when the lights are off, how much power's been used what the temperature is it's kind of cool <laughs> i really like it even his gym tells him where, where, whether or not he should put on a jersey <laughs> that's that's really cool okay i mean okay there's there's not a lot of use for this uh it's more because you can that's that's i guess why you do these things uh, but it's a lot of fun though it's a lot of fun to do i think it's one of those things that are it's probably more fun building this thing and seeing it work than than the actual practicality of it oh yeah but, you know, I, I think he can – here's the thing. At the moment, it's pretty much read-only. You know, it, it, you can just see what, what's happening. What would be really cool is if he could control the house. So if he tweets or a special account tweets to say lights on kitchen or something, then the kitchen lights come on. That would be cool. <laughs> There's an idea well, for him. Well, yeah, that would be that would be interesting. You know, in, so, a, in a read-write configuration. In that sort of situation, you'd want something a little more direct than having to rely on a third-party tweet service. Yeah, yeah but you'd the, want to be able to just SMS your, SMS your home. Well, actually, he did originally uh, set this up via just on the cell phone network. That's how he originally did it. But uh, mm-hmm. he, he put it on Twitter after that. But I think the neat thing about the, the fact that it's on Twitter is that you can kind of do it from anywhere. You don't have to have a phone with you. You just, you just need a connection somewhere. You can do it from mm. your phone if you like, or you can just you know, find an internet connection and, and, and see what's going on in the home. And uh, <laughs> you know, if, if he does a read-write configuration, uh, I, I think that would be kind of cool. You know, switch yeah. the lights on remotely from work. or You could, you could really scare the wife, couldn't you? <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this, this, this it's giving me some ideas. <laughs> anyway. Oh, no. Poor Mrs. Edwin. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Apple's pulled another application. Oh, gosh. They're pulling them left, right, and center, it seems. The latest one is a Commodore 64 emulator that's been pulled from the App Store. Uh, mm. the, and the reason is, mm. is because it breaks the rules. The rules say that an application may not itself install or launch other executable code by any means, including, but without limitation, through the use of a plugin architecture, calling other frameworks, or other APIs, or otherwise. So that kind of really includes emulators. and but Any then, sort of emulators, which is the reason why you don't see Java or Flash well, on, a, an, on the iPhone. That's a because of, all of those 
do those things. It is interesting they're, what they're doing for it. They're making it so that you have to have written something specifically for the iPhone for you to be able to use it on the iPhone. That yeah, rule basically that. says you can't use the iPhone to emulate something. And yeah, I, I don't understand it either, but they must have some sort of reasoning around it. They I guess they don't want you to be able to create a an emulator on the iPhone, which suddenly allows you to run all of the stuff which you can get from the Microsoft App Store. <laughs> Windows Mobile the, Emulator. From the Nokia <laughs> App Store, exactly. Because yeah. imagine if you could you run an emulator which allowed you to run Android so that you could run an Android-based thing on your iPhone. Yeah, but that's not, never bothered Apple before. Look at the iMacs. You can you can run Windows on that. You can, you know, through through VMware Fusion, you can emulate. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems, it seems weird. The, the other thing is, though, that isn't it a bit of a disability not having Flash? Yeah, well, it is really, isn't it? So much of the stuff that is on the web is based on Flash. So many websites base stuff on Flash. Yeah, it is a really interesting um, restriction that they've got. Hey, we might soon be seeing digital downloads and streaming over the net included in the official charts in the UK. Mm. Well, it's about time, isn't it? That's that's somebody finally (laughs) deciding that, yes, online delivery of things really is (laughs) a legitimate source of statistics, a legitimate revenue venue, and it's good for them to actually somebody to actually be um realizing that. Absolutely, it's. Uh, I think this is this is sensible. You know why? Why wouldn't they? At the end of the day, you know, it's it's not just limited to radio play and CD sales. Yeah, it's it's actually going after the showing the sources that people are using to listen to music or find music. It's reflecting reality. It's reflecting reality instead of the the non-reality of only looking at, you know, a couple of the venues, the couple of the avenues, I mean, that people are using to get music and not the majority of people. be interesting to see that once this comes in, whether the charts will be significantly different to, to the way they were when they were just taking into account CD sales and radio play. Mm, mm. I think you'll probably find that they will be. If so, it, it means that people are listening to different stuff online to what they buy or listen to it on the radio. And it's quite possibly reflected of the different markets. A different set of the music listening community listens to music on the radio or buys CDs than those who do it online. I guess also it depends how much weighting they put to the online stuff. That, that really mm. all, all depends. But uh, it's good to see them moving in that direction anyway because that, that's reality. That's, that's mm, embracing the online community, yeah. the online distribution methods. That's, that's not it one is thing reality. That the, well, it's, it's not one thing that the music industry has been renowned for. So it is no. good to see a bit of a turnaround there. Yes, it is. One of the MPs in Australia is not happy that they can't have Firefox on their desktop. No, no, the IT department says IE only. The reason I bring this story up is because I've seen this many, many times before. And why why is it that IT departments seem so strict on the browser, that whichever browser it is, but this is your browser, you can't have any other browser. Are there, are there really significant costs involved in, in maintaining a second browser or even a third browser on the desktop? Yeah, I've also come across this a lot, not just with browsers, but with all sorts of different software of the, this is what the IT department will support. This is what the IT department will allow 
on their computer systems and you've got to live with it. And if you want something for whatever reason which is outside of that, then you either have to negotiate extra support with the IT department or, you know, provide pay <laughs> extra money from your department to theirs to have them support what you want or you have to do without it. It's I'm myself, I really don't see how, depending on what it is, it could, you know, so drastically increase the support costs that they just, you know, verbatim say no. Not not for a browser. I mean, I, I can understand perhaps like, you know, if you're asking for open office instead of Microsoft office, I've actually seen cases where people create files with open office and look, I'm not... I'm not criticizing open office at all, but the reality is that you can create files in open office that just don't work properly when the next person opens them in Microsoft Office. It's not a hundred percent compatible. That's just the reality of it. Yeah. Uh, so oh, you get the you get the same thing if so, you have somebody create something in Microsoft Office ninety seven and then try to do it something with it in Office two thousand and seven. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, that, that just goes to show. But you see, so I can kind of understand perhaps the Office productivity software need, needing to be, you know, tightened Consistent, if you like. Yeah. Absolutely. But for a browser, a, we're, this, we're talking about a web browser. Okay, a web browser isn't trivial these days, but it's not exactly, I mean, we're talking about an additional browser for a start. We're not just talking about removing IE and putting Firefox for certain customers. Why can't customers just have Firefox in addition to IE, what's what's so bad about that? What's I so guess costly about from that? The, well, if I if I put on the the IT department sort of shoes at the moment, and think of it from you know what they could be thinking, internet browsers are all points of vulnerability. They are points of interface between the wider internet and individual computers. And depending on the patch level, you know what vulnerabilities each of those different browsers has compared to the others, it is an extra piece of software, uh, an extra set of patches that you have to maintain, that you have to make sure all of the people who are on using that one are having across. And if you are doing it on a, well, we have IE as the bulk one, and so our standard patching schedule automatically patches the IE, but then if, you know, a half dozen people out of your many hundreds have something else that they use a different browser you have to remember that those people also have this different browser and what mechanism are you going to use to make sure that they're constantly patched so it is another point of entry for security issues but I, I think you've actually highlighted the fact that there is a wider cost that we might not be immediately obvious. Uh, perhaps it's not the extra calls you're going to get from the at the help desk, but it may well be, as you said, you're going to have to manage those computers in terms of their security levels, making sure they are patched properly. And I guess there is a cost associated with managing that. It's very, mm. very easy if you know exactly what's out there. You push a button and IE is automatically patched, but you now have to you know, cater for these additional Firefox clients, for example. Uh, th that takes time and effort and, and money. So I guess that I guess it's uh, there is a hidden cost there that perhaps we don't really see. It's one of those things that isn't obvious. So people do see this as a case of, well, why can't I have my Firefox? Why can't or why can't I have Opera on my on my desktop or whatever it is? And I think it gets rather difficult for the poor old IT department to to sort of cater for everyone, but at the same time. Uh, not to open things up too much and, and create themselves a management nightmare. Mm. All right, look, we'll take a break and when we come back, we'll talk about the new 
New Zealand music store from Telecom. Right, welcome back. Telecom's launching New Zealand's largest homegrown mobile music store. Although there is a catch, it's full of DRM. You won't be able to get these tracks off onto an iPod or some other MP3 player. What are they thinking? What are they thinking? Goodness me. We've moved <laughs> Have it. they not looked at the, the, the other music stores out there? <laughs> exactly. Where are they going? Away from DRM. Are away from DRM because Why? the customers do don't this? want DRM. Why do they do it? It just baffles me. It. Who knows? Who knows what they're thinking there? I, I, I know. I know the answer why DRM was there right at the very beginning. You know, when when digital downloads, were, you know, were relatively new. Mm-hmm. That's because the music companies insisted that they put that on there. But surely this can't be a case now because we've seen, you know, like the likes of iTunes, Amazon. They don't have. Uh, they don't have DRM anymore. So the music companies have been convinced that DRM isn't the best model. So surely, look, I don't know the details, but I can't imagine that this would be coming from the music stores. Mm. I I just don't know. <laughs> it has me baffled. Well, I guess the good news is though that it is one of the large. Well, it's going to be the largest mobile music store. So this is kind of tailored for mobiles, and I don't know. I'm I'm just trying to sell it. <laughs> I'm not doing a very good job. <laughs> Maybe it's not a very good product. And <laughs> I well, don't know. It, it'll be definitely available to the users well it, it is launched and available to customers of the new xt network so we'll see how well it does yeah uh, i guess that's yeah i i don't know it just seems bizarre but anyway there we go so if you want music with drm go to the telecom music store and buy yourself a track there's 3.2 million to choose from so plenty of choice plenty of choice you just can only use it on your xt phone you, if and, you upgrade phones, you can, well, if you upgrade phones, you can transfer it. Although, well, if you upgrade or change XT phones, yes, XT phones. But here's the uh, the catch, though: you actually have to re-download it. So, so they, yeah, they, you they can't transfer it. It is it no, is exactly. Bad. Once they, it's on that phone, it's stuck on that phone. Exactly. So, telecom end up clipping the ticket twice because if you're going to re-download it, they ping you for the for the extra bandwidth. Indeed, Very they smart. do. They, they ping you for the traffic again. So, well, maybe there's part of their marketing strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Pay for, pay, for, pay for the XT network. All right, that's the show for this week. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Brett, good to have you hosting the show with me once again. Yeah, always a pleasure. All righty. Uh, so that wraps up, I guess, uh, episode 23. Don't forget to visit our website at boysoftech.com. You can leave comments there as well if you wish. So thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you all again next week for episode 24. Good night. Bye-bye.